Welcome to The Edge from Bantam Tools, our podcast about designers, educators, and businesses exploring the frontiers of digital fabrication. I'm Bree Pettis. And I'm Zach Dunham. On today's episode, we're going to talk all about prototyping and prototyping. Alberto Savoia is a mathematician and engineer who, among many things, led the initial development of Google's AdWords. After several big wins, Alberto had the sobering experience of seeing one of his startups fail. And he set out to develop a framework for testing ideas in the market before actually launching them. Later on in today's show, we'll also speak with Scott Miller, the co-founder of Dragon Innovation, about how hardware-focused startups prototype and make the right decisions early on in the process. If you're an entrepreneur or inventor, this episode is for you. Alberto, I'm really excited for this interview because your PDF about prototyping resonated so deeply with me. And then more recently, you launched a book about the right it, which goes and takes those concepts and actually gives people even more infrastructure to test things and validate ideas. Tell us a little bit about your background, about how you, you jumped into like needing to prototype stuff. Well, Brett, first of all, I'm not going to let you compliment me and say nice things without fighting back. So, um, <laughs> Uh, uh, first of all, I'm a big fan of yours, so th this means a lot to me. So in terms of my background, I'm an engineer. Initially, I studied mathematics, and then I got my hand on a little programmable HP calculator, HP 25C. And from then on, I decided, well, computers are fun, and I taught myself programming. And I was lucky enough to join Sun Microsystems in the early days, which uh, was a great experience because I was surrounded by great people like Bill Joy and Andy Bechtolsheim. And then after 13 years at that company where I got to build and make a lot of stuff, I did my first startup, Velogic, which builds software testing tools. We raised $3 million, and 18 months later, we, we received an offer to be acquired for $100 million. So I thought, man, this is so easy. Why doesn't everybody do a startup? <laughs> right? I was calling uh -huh. my friends in Italy and say, hey, come to America. It's good. <laughs> Alberto eventually moved on to becoming the first engineering director at Google and was put in charge of developing AdWords. As he puts it, I thought I was pretty good. I thought I was the Italian Steve Jobs for a while, Stefano Giobini. And then after a handful of big wins, Alberto decided to go back to the startup world and again take on the challenge of launching a new product. I did my second VC-funded startup, and this time I wanted to go big, raise $25 million, built a software development tool, which was a computer science tour de force, and everybody told us, if you build it, we will buy it. So we built it amazing. We built a team of PhD engineers with just all the bells and whistles, and then we launched and I failed. I failed. So all those people who said they would buy the product did not buy it, even though we built exactly what they told us they wanted us to build. So my reaction was, how is it possible? You know, I, we built it right. What happened here? And that's when I came up with my semi-famous uh, catchphrase, make sure you're building the right it before you build it right. And I realized that a huge amount of entrepreneurs and inventors who are in my opinion, our most valuable resource, end up building and productizing products that uh, the market is not interested in. So I shifted my focus from building things and building them right to make sure uh, that I'm building the right thing and helping other people not make the same mistake I do. I've had two sort of significant failures. And when you build something, there's so much that gets put into it and there's so much passion that as an entrepreneur, you think, oh, this just can't fail. I'm so right. And then when it doesn't pan out as planned. It's really an existential crisis. How did I get here? Why did it not work out? 
Albert Duke, for people who are unfamiliar, can you lay the groundwork for pre-do-typing and give us some, some basic definitions to work with here? As I explain in the book, there is a big spectrum between having an idea, which is completely abstract, and coming up with a finished product. It's a very wide spectrum. Now, when people think about prototyping with an O, uh, I found out that people can think of prototypes that can take uh, two years and $20 million to build. You know, it's less than the product that presumably takes more. But I thought, that's still a lot of time. Uh, that's what I did with my startup that didn't work. So I came up with this term, prototyping, and I was inspired by this example. So at the beginning of the computer age, IBM wanted to invest into speech-to-text translation. Now, in those days, uh, because they figured people don't know how to use keyboard, right? Today, everybody knows how to use a keyboard. You go back 40 years, who used a keyboard? Secretaries, uh, writers, and programmers, right? Dictation. Dictation. They thought, yeah, nobody's going to buy a computer if they have to learn how to type. So they thought, what if I have a speech-to-text translation? Of course, they couldn't even build a prototype because 40 years ago, the hardware wasn't fast enough. The software wasn't there. But before making this multi-billion dollar investment, they did a simple experiment. They brought people in the room, uh, say, let's say executive, right? The, the kind of business people that would have uh, people to whom they dictate. I said, look, we invented this amazing tool. Uh, you speak into this microphone and you tell the computer what to do and it will do it for you. So people came in and said, dictate letter to Mr. Jones, yada, yada, yada. And they could see on the screen this thing appearing. It works. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it said, well, this cannot happen. Uh, you know, how is it possible? In reality, it wasn't happening. So what was <laughs> the microphone was being fed to one of those uh, very skilled typists who typed as fast as they could. And so they saw the result on the screen. So I thought, all right, this is, you cannot call this a prototype. Because right? IBM, you know, a prototype involves soldering and uh, software. You, you, IBM was not planning to breed a small uh, race of typists that they would fit inside little computer box and then feed them cheese and crackers through this floppy drive. So this has nothing to do with proving whether or not you could build this uh, speech-to-text machine. It was to determine whether people would use it, whether they would like it, how they would use it. So that's how I came up with the word pretendotype. So the first mm. word was because pre they pretended to have something where, in fact, it was just a, a you know a tapis hidden in another room. There's another story that Alberto told us about the Palm Pilot, the somewhat clunky late '90s personal digital assistant device that was invented by Jeff Hawkins. Hawkins, like IBM, essentially prototyped his way to validating the idea of a handheld personal computer before fully launching it. So he got a little block of wood the shape of a smartphone. And on that block of wood, he put a paper interface, like a user interface. And then he carried it with him for four weeks. And during those four weeks, he, he counted how many times he would use it, how many days he carried with him, and what he would use it for. So what he did, he was able to collect actual data, his own data. I call it Yoda, your own data. <laughs> that if this product existed, he would use it. So once he once he proven boy, if I build it, I will use it. Then he went and built a proper prototype, which involved uh, soldering irons and software. You said something interesting about we know or you know that you can build it, but that's not the point, right? The point is not to rush into that phase of building it because you want to validate the it 
as you put it, first. But like, you have to kind of let go of your ego a little bit too in order to adopt this mindset, you know? And you talk about this in the, at least the PDF that I read, the sort of damn the torpedoes, let's just go ahead anyway. It's really hard to turn that off. That's absolutely right. So uh, being an engineer and a mathematician, I looked at the odds and I thought, okay, if you look at all these market failures and I put them into several buckets and I looked at them, how many of this product failed because people couldn't build what they set out to build for, say, technological reason. That number was vanishingly small, right? On the other hand, the statistics, and I don't use statistics a lot unless I'm 100% convinced that they work. And the, the one statistic, in fact, the only statistic that I use in my book that is not from my own data is that 80 to 90% of all new things fail. Not just product, not just businesses. Most things in nature fail, right? Most genetic mutations fail. Most relationships fail. Most variations on things that work tend to fail. So on one hand, you have, what is the risk that you cannot build it? Negligible. What is the risk that if you build it, it will fail in the market? Very high, 80 to 90%. So that made it pretty easy to get over this ego thing, this passion of wanting to, to build something without validating it. When we return, we'll go deeper on this concept of prototyping with Alberto. But first, I catch up with Scott Miller. Scott is the co-founder and CEO of Dragon Innovation, a Boston-based firm focused on coaching hardware startups through the muddy waters of manufacturing at scale. Scott is a mechanical engineer by training, and before starting Dragon, he worked on everything from leading the manufacturing team at iRobot to build 40,000 Roombas a week, and even making a robotic walking dinosaur at Walt Disney. Uh, so think of something about 12 feet long, 12 degrees of freedom, powered by a Corvette engine, and, and you'll get the idea. But then as it gets more relevant to what I do today, I um, went over after Disney to iRobot for 10 years and kind of taking what we'd learned about robotics, it led the technical team to build, in our case, a robot baby doll, my real baby. And that's where I really learned design for manufacture and assembly, which I never really understood before, but I just fell in love with, with that and with manufacturing and, you know, learning how the sausage is made. So we built about a hundred thousand of the baby. And then based on that, Colin, the CEO tapped me to lead the technical part of the Roomba team, plunked a Roomba on my desk and said, Hey, Scott, here's one, go figure out how to make a lot of them. So I was like, all right, cool. So I moved <laughs> to China for four years and we set up a team of about 55 people in Hong Kong, China, and India. And like you can imagine, we made every mistake in the book. But eventually, um, you know, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. And we got to the point where we could build about 40,000 uh, Roombas a week, which was just a really sweet rush. And then a little more than 10 years ago, I started Dragon uh, with my co-founder, Herman. And what we saw is that it was getting easier to go from an idea to a prototype than ever before. Uh, around 2009 through amazing things like 3D printing with MakerBot to Arduino, um, GitHub, and uh, Hackster and so on. But then people get this prototype and have no idea, like, how do I scale this thing? And that's really where we'd spent the last 10 years. So we thought there was an opportunity to stand up a, a company, and that was kind of the formation of, uh, of Dragon. So cool. So Alberto, earlier on in this episode, he's sort of making the case that the reason that most products fail 
is for him like less due to the engineering complexities, but rather the market research before launch. Like, what's the number one point of failure that you see for for hardware startups? Yeah, so I think with his observation, there is a lot of truth to that. And it all kind of ties together um, in that we believe deeply that the early decisions cast really long shadows, uh, meaning it's easy to change things up front, but once you go further down a path, it's much more difficult to change. And if you've built the wrong product, either use the wrong fabrication techniques, maybe you use die casting and you should have used injection molding, or you're going after the wrong market and not solving the right um, problem where customers see the most value, it's very, very difficult and expensive in terms of time and schedule to course correct later. So I do think getting those decisions made uh, correctly up front is important. What are some of the, the critical decisions for hardware teams? Yeah, so you know, picking up on what you put down before, I think getting confidence that you've got the right product market fit is really important and being able to iterate really quickly so that you can take that feedback from the customer um, and then incorporate it in your design and then put another version in front of them and see if it addresses the, the need you know, more effectively. And I think part of it also sort of talks to design constraints. So you know, when you're designing something from scratch, it's really tough because there's an infinite number of variables, how it looks, how big it is, how much it weighs, how much it should cost, and so on, that it's really, really difficult to boil the ocean. But if you can just make some assumptions and then test those out uh, and get some constraints that you have conviction in in place, then that makes designing the rest of it much easier. Is there like a prototyping manifesto that you encourage teams to to do? Like, is the first prototype that you 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 like to see a hardware startup team do like something that's made out of cardboard or something that's just three D printed? Or yeah, so the short answer is yes. Um, <laughs> you know, the um, the like crude and simple to get going is awesome. Whether it's a uh, you know chopped off piece of two by four or a simple three D printed part, uh, I think it's so critical for uh, people to be able to hold something in their hand versus looking at slideware. You talk about this stuff probably several dozen times a year. What are the like two, yeah, say two to three takeaways that you always try and instill with with people in this space? Right. So a couple of things. One, uh, you know, just back to the early decisions cast long shadows and understanding whether you're making a decision you can reverse later or one you have to get right is critical. Two, that uh, prototyping is forgiving, whereas uh, NPR or MPI or new product introduction is not very forgiving. So for prototyping, you want to get as many cycles as you can in as fast as you can to get that customer feedback and really get conviction. Because once you start moving down the MPI process, it gets very expensive to make changes. So you want to get it right. That'd be the second thing. And then the third thing is, you know, just understanding the unknown unknowns. Most folks or companies haven't done manufacturing before, and there's a lot of things that are involved in going from one to many that many people aren't aware of. So trying to talk with people and understand how the process works, what are the steps, who are the good partners to work with is critical so that you can then manage those. Scott, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This was a blast. You can learn more about Scott's work at dragoninnovation.com. Welcome back. This is The Edge from Phantom Tools.
I launched a product called the Digitizer, which was a 3D scanner. And everybody said that, you know, we should have a 3D scanner because people have 3D printers and it's, it's hard for people to use CAD programs. And wouldn't it be great if there was just a scanner that could scan things and make things? And, and I was convinced by all these people that said they wanted it. And so we built it and I loved it and I still use it. I like it. But it was a total miserable failure in the market. And when we launched it, there were competitors and there was so much validation for the idea. But once we actually started selling it, it was like crickets. Well, yeah, it, it's, so it's a common experience. This is a great, great example. So l- let me tell you, people use the word failure and put everything in one bucket, but there's different types of, of failures. First of all, I would say there are avoidable failures and unavoidable failures. And the embarrassing failure is the ones where if you don't even a minimum of adequate research and pre-totapping the way I suggest, you could have completely avoided that failures. Now, having said that, I believe that people who are successful and can afford to lose, they should take these moonshots, right? I would hate a world where everybody prototypes everything because it would be pretty boring. I want people to try some crazy stuff, but just know that you go in with a very low probability and make sure you don't hurt people that invest in you with an expectation of uh, some returns. Mm -hmm. That really reminds me, actually, my previous job was at Kickstarter. And, you know, I spent uh, four years coaching hundreds of teams figure out how to launch their their campaigns, their ideas of hardware startups on Kickstarter. And we always talked a lot about risk and that there was inherently failure in the system. And we had this number of like 10% of projects would fail, not in the sense of to raise money, but would fail in the sense that they would be successful in the campaign, but never deliver a product. Um, and we were, on the one sense, we were like, man, we wish that were 1%. But on the other other side, we were like, no, this would be a really boring platform if people weren't really shooting for the stars all the time and trying, trying something that they eh, might not be able to deliver, right? It might be a stretch. Um, there's, there were some really exciting projects in that, uh, in that mix of things that never did see the light of day. That is a good point, but a lot of people ask me questions about how's Kickstarter for validating a product. And I tell them, it's awesome. I'm a great fan of Kickstarter, but you have to do it at the right time. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Because I tell them, look, pre-totapping, the techniques I teach you are faster than a Kickstarter, right? Because, you know, to have a proper Kickstarter campaign and page, it's, it, it's quite a bit of effort. Six months to a year. Yeah. Plus, they don't expose your idea to the entire world. And some people are not ready for that, right? And more importantly, if people sign up and say, I want it, you don't get stuck having to produce 100,000 Pebble watches and not being able to deliver. So I believe, you know, because somebody told me recently, Alberto, the last three Kickstarter projects I invested in or I funded, two of them never delivered and I never got, got our money back. That leaves a bad taste in everybody's mouth. So the ideal solution is you both pre-totap it, demonstrate it, you know, prove to yourself that if you build it, it would be worthwhile. Then prototype it, make sure that you could build it under understand scalability, and then go to Kickstarter to do it at scale, right? To get your, your broader market. And that way you minimize the pain uh, involved for everyone. One of the things I was thinking about is this how mutually exclusive prototyping and sort of stealth mode are. So you touched on this when you are saying you don't want to expose your idea to the world. At the same time, you need to expose your idea so you can get that validation. And a lot of people that I was you know, coaching, they'd be afraid to share their project because they knew it was going to take a year or more to develop after they even do a campaign. And so they would only be sharing it for the first time 
really when they when they launched a campaign and it always seemed like a disservice because um, they weren't getting that early validation. But how do you do stealth mode and keep your IP protected while also prototyping? Well, uh, th that, is, that is a very good question. And by the way, prototyping addresses that, I think, better than any other approach because you focus on a small number of people that represent your ideal target market. And that number can be as small as 100 people to be statistically significant, right? So if you have a, a sample group of 100 and they are, you know, it's their accurately chosen sample, I don't think a statistician will slap you in the face for using that. So first of all, you reduce the number of people you expose it to a very uh, small number, as little as 100 per experiment. Out of those 100, is there a risk that somebody will steal your idea? Yes, but it's very, very small. Again, you hear this thread with me, you know, I, I have to think as a mathematician. I said, okay, there is a 0.01% probability of somebody stealing your idea, especially because very few people steal ideas until they're proven to be successful, right? Ideas are stolen once you know that there's a market. Until there is a market, entrepreneurs, they want to do their own damn idea. So there is always a risk. You cannot eliminate risk. Risk is not something that you can look at in the absence of alternatives, right? So once again, on one hand, you have the risk of not prototyping, which is 80% chance of failure. With prototyping, you take, say, a 0.1% chance that somebody somehow steals your idea. I know exactly which risk I would rather take. One of the things that I really like about your work is it gives this vocabulary so that teams can talk about, okay, we don't have enough Yoda, you know, your own data. Okay, we don't have. You know, we need to. We need to do these prototyping experiments, and you know, there's a bunch that you run through to validate the idea. And it, it's good to do these things. It's, uh, but I think for for a good chunk of folks, a first step is just having this sort of vocabulary around how to talk about getting things done and sort of taking things from an idea to a product. So the a vocabulary that grows is an indication of a deeper and broader understanding of the topic we are discussing. It's not just enough to say, I got some data. What kind of data is it? Where did you get it? So, you know, in my book, I talk about OPD, other people's data, and Yoda, your own data. I'm still an engineer. So what I'm saying is use the rigor and science that you use in building the product to make sure that the product is actually built. And if you don't mind, can I talk about my favorite tool in the book, the XYZ hypothesis? Yeah, 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 please do. I love it. The XYZ hypothesis is a tool you could use to take any abstract idea that you have for a product and put it in a format which is standardized and which forces you to think about what exactly your idea is. So the XYZ hypothesis has a following format template. X percent of Y will do Z. Now, Y is your target market. Is uh, So I, I'm going to use a non-technical example because I'm, I'm familiar with it and people can get it. So my idea, let's say, uh, second-day sushi, uh, one of my favorite examples. So my idea is that sushi is too expensive, and if I sell sushi that is not that fresh at half the price, people who have strong stomachs and weak wallets can, uh, you know, will buy it. I say, okay, this is your idea. Express it to me in a more business-like, rigorous way. So, you know, X percent of Y will do Z. As you remember from your uh, high school algebra, X, Y, and Z are the letters we use for unknown variables, right? So expressing the idea in that format, you know, gives you the first approximation. So in the case of second-day sushi, I would say 20% 
of packaged sushi buyers, that's your why, right? Packaged sushi buyer, your target market, will buy second day sushi if it's price, if it's half the price. So notice what you've done. You've taken something very abstract and wavy for your idea. Uh, people who like sushi but don't cannot cannot afford real, you know, fresh sushi will will spend less. And I force you to actually put numbers there. How big is this market? Twenty percent is your first estimate. And uh, how much will they pay? You know, for it half the price. Now a very interesting dynamic happens if you're in a group. Once you start putting things down in number, you uncover all kind of disagreements or things that you implicitly thought, hey, what do you mean 20%? I thought we'd get at least 50% of the market. So just putting things down in an XYZ format reveals so many problems for the team. And guess what? Because it's a hypothesis, the job of a hypothesis is very simple. They exist for one purpose, which is to be tested. And so the XYZ format gives you a chance to express yourself as clearly as possible. And it also gives you the template to find out if 20% of people actually do show up to buy your cheap sushi. You know, the thing that I like about this is that it gives people the ability to test completely stupid and wonderful things. Do you have any favorite like assignments that you give folks to just get the ball rolling to like, like uh, you go through a whole thing around like learning on the bus in your book and there's all sorts of other stuff. Do you ever give assignments to folks to come up with something and then test it just to go through the process and feel the process? Absolutely. And I think I have an example that just right up the alley of your audience that, that involves 3D printing. So there was, uh, it, imagine you have a little household gadget. Uh, this, by the way, is inspired by something that people actually did. So you come up with these little gadgets, I don't know, something to hold your keys out the door that you can 3D print, right? And before you go out and you order, you know, the molds and mani trying to manufacture uh, 10,000s of them, you want to know if people would buy, uh, would buy. So here's a scenario. Maybe you 3D print 10 of them and you do this, this technique, which I call the infiltrator. So in the actual example, which some people actually did, they, they created this, 10 of these products uh, and then they put little fake IKEA price tags on them. So they look like the kind of products that you buy at IKEA. And instead of shoplifting from IKEA, they entered an IKEA store. Uh, they, they actually bought on eBay a used IKEA employee shirt so they could impersonate an IKEA employee. So they actually infiltrated the IKEA store. And when they found a little free wall space, they put up the little display for their product with a fake IKEA price tag, with a fake IKEA name, you know, the typical IKEA name, Valhub, you know, with umlauts all over the place. <laughs> uh, and then they watch as people pass by. So, you know, they were there with a the notebook and said, okay, 100 people passed by, 20 people picked it up and looked at it, and eight people put it on their shopping cart and made for the exit. So that's what I call Yoda. That's your own data, right? They actually put it in the cart, and they were ready to buy it. So at, at that point, they, they, you, know, you can stop them and tell them, look, this is just a prototype. You don't have to pay, but I'll give it to you for free. So for very little cost, right, for printing, you know, 3D printing 10 copies, you're able to get data of uh, whether or not uh, people would buy. And I would say that's uh, invaluable. So this is a pre-totapping technique. It's called the infiltrator. You infiltrate an existing store uh, with your product and you just put it there on the shelf to see if people pick it up. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I love that. 
Alberto, how much of this prototyping mindset do you adopt outside of business strategy and hardware and startups? Like when you cook yourself breakfast in the morning, are you like, all right, I'm going to make this big meal, but I'm going to start out with these few small steps here. Like how much of this has taken over your life as a philosophy that you do every minute of every day? Well, you know, I'll, I'll give you some example. You know, I'm not going to speak for myself because I'm preaching, but I'll give you an example from my daughter, which is my favorite, right? So actually two examples from her. She lived in Berkeley. She had a two-bedroom apartment. Her company's in San Francisco. She wanted to move to San Francisco, but she couldn't afford a two-bedroom apartment. So she thought, can I live in a studio apartment? So what did she do? She prototyped it. She locked one room. So even though she was in a two-bedroom apartment, she pretended to live in a much smaller studio apartment. So move all this stuff out. And so over one month, she figured out, yeah, you know, I can, I can swing this. So she had data that she could live in a smaller apartment. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so all these ideas have infected your family. And there's a common vocabulary at the dinner table about this, too, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I always say, you know, I tell my wife uh, on Mother's Day, honey, you're the right it. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's not very romantic, but you know, for an engineer, it's possibly the most romantic thing you could say. <laughs> Thanks so much, Alberto. We're, we're going to put a link to your book uh, in the show notes at bantamtools.com slash the edge. And it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you, Reese. Thank you, Zach. It's, it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Alberto. All right. Cheers. You can pick up a copy of Alberto's book wherever you get your literature online these days. It's called The Right It, and you can learn more about it at albertosavoya.com. Thank you for listening to The Edge, the Bantam Tools podcast. Check out all the show notes and the links at bantamtools.com slash the edge. Make sure to subscribe, and we'll see you next time. And that's a wrap for season two. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey through the digital fabrication community. We're hitting the road next week to record more interviews for season three. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. If you have thoughts about future guests on the show or just comments or feedback, drop us a line at podcast at bantamtools.com. Thanks, and we'll see you in a few months.